When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, October 30th. On today's show, we'll look further into the presidential election in Brazil and how tech has played a role. On Sunday, the far-right candidate Jair Bolsonaro was elected president, and many have attributed his victory to massive misinformation spread through WhatsApp, which is, of course, owned by Facebook. We'll talk about the newest tech from Apple, which had an event in New York City this week. It launched two new Macs and a new iPad. Yes, Apple in the Big Apple. We'll also be joined by Joan Donovan, the lead researcher at Data and Society, who focuses on online hate groups and all kinds of manipulation on social media. Donovan has done extensive research on how communities of hate use social media to recruit and organize. It's a conversation that sadly has been reignited this week following the horrific terrorist attack on the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh over the weekend. The shooter, Robert Bowers, has been an active user of the free speech absolutist social media platform Gab that has become kind of a digital playpen for neo-Nazis and white supremacists. Gab went offline Sunday night. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. Okay, Will, so I'm talking to you from New York or Delaware? I know you were just in New York, right? I I made a whirlwind trip up to New York for the Apple event. It was a rare Apple event in New York. Usually they have them in the Bay Area. So I made the trip. I'm back in Delaware now, and I'm talking to you from there. Yeah, and so how was it? What was the vibe? It was interesting. You know, I've always covered these things from afar. This was my first Apple event. And from afar, it's very easy to joke about the stuff they're saying and snark uh, and make funny comments on Twitter and criticize. It's harder to do that when you're sitting in a theater surrounded by really genuinely enthusiastic Apple employees who are just going nuts. And are cheering they plants? Like who goes to these things actually besides, you know, journalists and a few celebrities? And are they like paid to do this? No, I think okay. I mean, maybe they are, but they seem, yeah, seem jazzed to be there. <laughs> so I know that for this event in New York, Apple picked some of its retail employees from the various Apple stores in New York City. In fact, I was sitting next to a few of them. They were like, it was like the thrill of a lifetime for them. Um, And they do put on quite a show. Even the smaller show was their fall event. So not the big iPhone event, but this was to announce a new MacBook Air and a new Mac Mini and a new iPad Pro. So kind of their second tier products. But they put on a big show. They had Lana Del Rey uh, at the end give a give a little concert. Um, Naomi Campbell was hanging out there. I saw her. So it's they they definitely bring the star power. So so tell me about some of the new Apple gadgets. The I don't know improvements or or not improvements. Things we need, we don't need. What's new? The headliner was the iPad Pro, but. I want to talk about the MacBook Air because I've been waiting for this for so long. It's just such a wonderful everyday computing device, and they haven't updated it in uh, since 2015. They right. finally came out with an all-new one, and it has 
most of the stuff that you would hope for and expect. It has the retina display that the last one did not have to the disappointment of a lot of Apple fans. Um, it has Touch ID. It has a Force Touch trackpad, um, USB-C. They actually managed to fit in the same size screen in a smaller computer, not just lighter, but it's actually less volume and it makes it even easier to handle than the old MacBook Air. Um, so it seems like a great device. That said, there's nothing really exciting about it. I mean, they're not they're not pushing computing forward. It's not going to change the way anybody interacts with with their uh, devices or with the world. Okay, but you know, we you told me uh, before we started taping this that you sense that they're moving away from laptops, which to me just sounds so obtuse because you would have to like literally surgically remove your my laptop from my lap from my hands. I feel like I'm always scrunched down in a corner somewhere typing furiously as a journalist. So, uh, what is what were you getting at there? Yeah, I am glad they're not giving up on the MacBook Air. To be clear, they they also have the MacBook and the MacBook Pro. And the MacBook Pro, both of those actually have had all kinds of problems with the keyboard, mm-hmm. other issues. Um, the MacBook was too expensive and too limited, really, to replace the MacBook Air. So I'm glad to see that for the record. But they just it's it just seems like the iPad is what they're really pushing as the future of personal computing. They went ahead and compared iPad's sales figures to the sales figures of PC laptops. So it, it, they seem like they're positioning the new iPad Pro as the device that they think everybody will want to have um, to put in their purse or, or put in their uh, bag to take to the coffee shop and set up shop for a while or to work on their couch at home. Um, and, you know, it's getting better at that. It's more powerful now. You can snap, you very easily snap on a keyboard case, but it just is not the same with iOS as it is with macOS. If anybody who's ever tried to do like a spreadsheet on iOS, they've been working on it, but it still feels like you're trying to get work done on a device that's made for pleasure. I still find it an awkward fit. All right, Will, thanks for the dispatch. It sounds like you survived yet another Apple event, but this time in person. We're going to move on now to our interview. Today we're joined for a special segment on the presidential election in Brazil that finalized on Sunday evening with extreme right candidate Jair Bolsonaro winning. His rise has been marked by his homophobia and racism and troubling comments against women, as well as his praise of Brazil's former violent dictatorship. Bolsonaro grew in popularity in large thanks to the platform offered by Facebook and WhatsApp, where misinformation on Bolsonaro's opponents spread like wildfire ahead of the election. With us today is Pablo Ortolato, who is a professor of public policy at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. He is the author of a report that found that over 50 percent of the most widely shared images on WhatsApp ahead of the election were misleading or flat out false. He wrote about the study in a New York Times op-ed co-authored with two of his colleagues earlier this month before the election closed. Professor Ortolato, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So let's start with kind of the basics of how Facebook and WhatsApp played a role here. Can you help me understand how the social media platforms work to inform voters or give a platform for such an unconventional candidate? The first thing is that uh, Brazilian political campaigns are public funded now. You only can there is no private money or very little private money in the in the political campaign. There's only public money, and the public money is distributed according to the number of seats that you have in Congress. So since Bolsonaro was in a small party, he didn't have any money to run for, for his candidacy. And he also, uh, in Brazil, you also have free airtime on TV and radio to broadcast your political campaign. And this broadcast time is also 
uh, in proportion of the number of seats that you have in Congress. So he didn't have the two most important assets for running for president, which are money and airtime. So his strategy was entirely based on using social media, especially uh, Facebook and WhatsApp. Facebook is known for for, for being a platform that is suitable for a, a political campaign, as you you seen in America seen in, in 2016. But the novelty of the Brazilian election is that Bolsonaro managed to build a campaign around WhatsApp, which I don't think is even very popular messenger app in the United States, but it's very popular in Brazil. About two thirds of Brazilian use WhatsApp regularly. And WhatsApp is a form of uh, closed chat groups. They're not public. Only you and your friends are part of the chat groups. There are hundreds of thousands of chat groups in WhatsApp. He managed to create uh, uh, WhatsApp chat groups and to distribute uh, political messages directly through direct uh, messaging to people. And because WhatsApp is based, is closed groups and it's, it's cryptographed communication, you cannot know what he is broadcasting, what he's saying. So he's communicating with people without being noticed. So he used that, especially in the dirty campaigning, to, to distribute uh, you know, this information at a, a very large scale without being noticed. When People realized there was a large operation in course. It was basically too late. So our, our article in the New York Times was basically telling WhatsApp, the company, that we had noticed that they are using this strategy and that WhatsApp should take measures to prevent that because they're basically using that to do political campaigning, basically uh, uh, made of lies. We measure uh, uh, the activities of two, 247 groups that post invitations online. So they're kind of public groups, even though they are closed, they, they published online, inviting people to get in. And we monitor those groups during the first round of the elections in Brazil. And we, find, we found out that 56% of the messages were basically lies, uh, information taken out of context or plain lies. And only 8% were truthful material. All the, the, the rest was basically uh, propaganda. So what is it about WhatsApp that makes disinformation spread so rapidly? Why doesn't uh, information that's correct spread as well? WhatsApp was originally a messaging app, but uh, 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 it also incorporated some broadcast features so you can send the same message, the same message to 256 people, and you can create groups without people authorizing. You can just add people that you have the number and put them in a chat group, and you can forward uh, messages. Originally to 200 people, now this this has been restricted to 20 people. So basically, what we uh, because of that, you can communicate to a large audience. If you broadcast a message to 256 activists and those 256 activists are each in chat groups with another 256 activists, with only two in one minute and two minutes, you can communicate 
with hundreds of thousands of people without being noticed. The thing is that you, you communicate without being noticed because you are not in the public sphere. You're not in the public arena. So this allows you to do this information without being noticed. You don't know who is behind, you know, who produced the lies because it's just a number. And they were uh, apparently what the campaign was doing was buying numbers in the United States and throwing them that away. WhatsApp uh, released a report saying that they have canceled uh, and blocked from WhatsApp uh, hundreds of thousands of numbers during this election process. So there was a really large scale operation in order to do this communication. Right. And and you mentioned as one of the examples of the misinformation that uh, voters in Brazil vote uh, with a number that corresponds to each candidate. One of the viral false stories that went around had a picture of a, a different candidate, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, next to the number 17. That was actually the number for Bolsonaro. Um, I was curious, Facebook made some efforts to try to control the flow of misinformation. Did they do enough? Did they do anything that you saw that that seemed to really matter? Um, I know that some people were calling for them to limit the number of people that you could forward a message to at the same time. Um, What did Facebook do and did it have an impact? I think Facebook owns WhatsApp, but I understand WhatsApp has a different management, an independent management team. And um, I don't think WhatsApp was prepared to do anything because it was the first time that this happened. I, I, I mean, WhatsApp has, be, has been used for political campaigning. In the peace process referendum in Colombia, it's been used. It has been used in the Mexican elections in July, but not as the main tool for political campaigning. I, I think the scale and the centrality of the use of WhatsApp in the Brazilian elections was completely new, and and WhatsApp wasn't prepared in order to take measures. So uh, basically, what we, we we told WhatsApp is that they should limit the number of people you can send the same message, what which is called broadcast. You can limit the number of forwards, you, the, the number of times you can forward a message, and you you should limit the number of groups you can create and the size of the groups so we could somehow limit that strategy. Because the, the problem with, with WhatsApp is that you have mass communication with secrecy. Secrecy is very good for interpersonal communication because it protects privacy and freedom of expression. So it's very, those are very solid features. But when it's combined, with mass communication, this combination, it, it's not good because you can talk to a mass audience without being noticed and you can use that for a large disinformation campaign. So WhatsApp wasn't prepared to do that when we wrote the company and we said, we noticed that and we think you should take those steps. They basically said, it's too late. It will take us a couple of months, a couple of weeks, maybe a month to do it. And by the time we, we implemented those changes, the campaign will be over. Professor Ortolato, this has been an incredibly insightful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Brazil. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Joan Donovan, an expert on hate groups and social media. Apple 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Joan Donovan. She's a lead researcher at Data and Society, a nonpartisan research center dedicated to teasing out some of the most complex cultural and political questions in our increasingly networked world. There she serves as the project lead on media manipulation, which is basically the study of how online can be instrumentalized to manipulate us. Donovan is also an affiliate at Berkman Klein Center for the Internet and Society at Harvard. I wanted to talk to Joan today because for many years, her research has focused on how hate groups use social media to forward their agendas. She's one of the sharpest minds on this topic. Joan Donovan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So hate groups exist online. This is something that we've seen in the news recently following the attack on Saturday morning at a synagogue in Pittsburgh uh, since the shooter was a member of Gab, an online social network that allows for free speech. And, and because of that hate speech, basically anything goes. But hate groups exist offline, too. I'm curious how important social networks are to organized hate in the United States. Yeah, so... Um an important question, but it's a sort of difficult one to answer in the sense that I have to go back about 25 years to start from the moment where the former KKK member, his name is Don Black, started Stormfront, and he had just recently left prison where he learned program, and he realized the opportunity for building a coalition of like-minded whites was more likely to happen online than offline. And he saw the power of the internet very clearly, and he started the Stormfront message board. And for the most part, the people who were posting on that message board were finding one another online by using search engines, Usenet lists, um, other forms of BBS boards, and all of the ways in which when you finally go down the rabbit hole, you can end up finding some other, you know, other fellow travelers. And in growing the population or the user base of Stormfront, though, people were really leery about going out into public space and talking about these issues. They would talk a lot about on Stormfront how they were thankful for the community, but they understood why they needed to remain anonymous because they would be shamed if they were to have these ideas in public. And you can look at research done by the SPLC. Stormfront has led to some of the most egregious, violent, and mass murderers, uh, mass murders in the states, and is primarily a place where we can track quite a bit of uh, domestic terrorism plots, where people talk about the desire to eradicate certain public figures, certain groups of people, and so as we watch the internet develop, we also watch the forums and the platforms for white supremacy change and. If it weren't for the political conditions of the early of early 2016, we probably wouldn't have seen street movements develop around white nationalism. But what was going on as the MAGA coalition built on itself, people were both using hate speech as a way to demonstrate their 
adherence to sort of a fundamentalist free speech principle online. But they were also using Nazism in a very ironic way. That is, they were trying to get people to spread these messages out of, uh, you know, just essentially shitposting and banter. And then, then banter eventually turns into belief. And we watched this unfold as researchers when I was at UCLA, and there was a clear change in the way in which white supremacists were using platforms to recruit. They were showing up on social media. Um, of course, Richard Spencer and the alt-right were fundamental in recruiting a bunch of people to these um, then political platforms. And so where Gap shows up is actually pretty interesting in the sense that they show up too in early 2016 as a platform that will not moderate. And Andrew Torba, who's the CEO of Gab, starts talking about how there's anti-white racism on all of these other platforms like Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, that are going to take down your posts if you post anything related to being pro-white. And in that recruitment, Andrew Torba was providing both a safe haven for white supremacists on his board, but also the essential movement infrastructure that a place like Stormfront envisioned in the early or in the later 1990s, but wasn't able to bring to fruition. And so I'm not surprised to see the kind of violence come out of Gab that looks a lot like the kind of violence we're used to from Stormfront. Yeah, and I I appreciate something that you said early on, which is that it's hard to disentangle the the online speech from the real-world violence. I mean, this is something April's written about some, too. When you have this debate, people who support platforms like Gab say, you know, free speech, free speech. But then, as you pointed out, there's a long history of the folks who use these sites, you know, Stormfront, going back to Anders Breivik, uh, um, I believe Dylan Roof was linked to Stormfront. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and now Daily we're seeing Stormer. he was also on the Daily, the Daily Stormer, Stormer okay. where, yeah, and that and that's another space that was a Daily Stormer is interesting because it's a, a sort of millennial take on Stormfront, where Stormfront are now the sort of the, the kind of boomer white nationalists, and Andrew Anglin that that built Stormfront and then incorporated uh, Weave as the sysadmin, he understands this as, you know, a tactic is to use irony, but also that people need a place to organize. And so the Daily Stormer was a place, again, where lots of unmoderated speech uh, happened. And we saw the results of that. Daily Stormer was one of the um, main spaces for organizing the Unite the Right rally. Right. Andrew Anglin uh, built the Daily Stormer. And so we saw after the Unite the Right rally, the Daily Stormer got deplatformed, somewhat similar to what happened to Gab after the shooting uh, this past weekend. Uh, And I'm curious, we see these companies that interoperate with Gab and the Daily Stormer take sites offline once something awful happens, right? And and when I say that, I mean the Internet is a network of networks. And in order for a website to run, you have to work with other companies like website hosting and security. And uh, and the companies that were working with them decided to, to pull their services. Um, But these companies had these anti-hate speech policies and anti-harassment policies for years, right? Like uh, DreamHost Mm -hmm. and and GoDaddy, they they prohibited this. But then 
they only decided to enforce it once something violent happens. And I'm curious if you could talk about the timing of this type of deplatforming. Like, why are they waiting to enforce it until something awful happens? Why didn't they enforce it years before? Yeah, and this, I think, is just part of the way in which all laws tend to work, which is that laws don't work without public pressure. We have a lot of laws that don't ever get enforced because mainly if there isn't public pressure to do the work, then, you know, a lot of things just go unremarked upon. And so even the content moderation industry as it's developed has been plagued with um, inconsistencies and, and you know, uh, claims that all content moderation is censorship and that this space that we call, you know, the online should be completely unregulated, should be jurisdictionless, and should be uh, completely unmitigated, you know, f- free flow of thought. But what we know from relatively better moderated spaces online is that the conversation tends to stay with the themes of the what the people on the platform are interested in talking about. But when you don't moderate anything, and this is sort of, you know, maybe like the third law of the internet is everything turns to Nazism. <laughs> like, right. And it's just, right. You know, it's just this weird thing where it's like, yeah, I thought this website was about posting pictures of cats and kids and Eventually, it's just cats, kids, and swastikas, and nobody understands why, and that's because there's nobody doing any enforcement. And so the issue with the content moderation industry is that at the same time that a place like Twitter wants to hold out that they're the free speech wing of the Internet, they also realize that if people who are their users that they want to keep believe that the company supports trolling, harassment, white supremacy, foreign espionage, then people are generally going to think it's a bad product and they're going to opt out eventually. And then what you're left with is sort of what Gab has decided to double down on, which is that eventually spaces online that are unmoderated do tend towards social norms that reward violence, that reward misogyny, that reward... um, you know, extremist speech and behavior. And so uh, it's important that other platform companies hedge against this and learn this lesson that cab is not is not censorship free. It becomes a cesspool by design. Can you tell us about the role of memes and humor in these online hate communities? I've done quite a bit of research in here, too, and I see this gray area where it's hard to tell if they're joking or not. And it almost seems strategic. Yeah, so one of the researchers here, Matt Gertson, has written about critical trolling and about ironic uh, trolling online. And one of the things that we see time and time again is that we want to know what the intent of the post is. And I suggest that if you want to know what the intent of someone is, look around for other statements. And so, for instance, um, online they call him the MAGA bomber or the Unabomber, which is the person who sent out the 15 bombs last week. I'm not going to say his name, but he drove a van that was covered in memes, covered in memes. And some of them he placed his own crosshairs on politicians. He was making his own internet media. And I think that when you look then around at the other kinds of posts he was making online, he was both sharing memes and sharing in this 
world where we can't know what intent is. And then he was also making death threats. And you can put some of this stuff together and think, well, you know what? He's really invested in anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim, anti-media, anti-Democratic Party messaging, plus he's making death threats, right? And so when I looked at, you know, all the ways in which people are trying to use irony to get out of being associated with Unite the Right, again, we were seeing that this claim that nobody knew what their intent was, was really hard to follow if you look around at other things they were posting, like pictures of themselves with guns and shields and um, homemade cudgels, um, pictures of them or statements of them saying, you know, can I get away with bringing pepper spray? Um, so you can you can look around and you can see that when people are organizing for mass violence, they betray themselves in the sense that the meme isn't necessarily the only form of communication. And the other thing is, is that people who are recruiting for movements, especially white supremacist movements, know that one of the key points in radicalizing someone is to get them to laugh about what it is that they think is a problem, and then to experiment with using dangerous speech um, to become familiar with those concepts and to become comfortable uttering those words and to become comfortable with the reaction one might get for using those statements in public. So these spaces, these kind of online spaces where people can go and and, and express hate speech freely or, or ask questions about hate speech, they're not just places for people who already adhere to these beliefs. They're also spaces where people who are curious can show up. And if they're easy to find, then they can possibly be recruited and, and learn something, right? Yes. Yeah, so when I was doing my research at UCLA on white supremacist use of DNA ancestry tests, we were looking at Stormfront and we were looking at the styles of posts online and how people show up with questions. One of the things that we discovered is that Stormfront does pay moderators to receive questions and they will provoke, promote dialogue on the platform to try to get people to engage. And I'll tell you that in 2015, when you Google search for white nationalists, the first response was a direct link to Stormfront. You didn't find information about white nationalists. You found white nationalists, right? That's different. And so, you know, the spaces that people go to to ask these kinds of questions are positioned to do engagement and are positioned to get people to look for these specific keywords so that they will be the ones that get found. Dylan Roof, for example, went to Wikipedia first to learn about Trayvon Martin. And in that, he looked, he found this one set of keywords very curious, which was black on white crime. And that's what he searched for in Google. And he found the Council on Conservative Citizens who have um, infographics and things about uh, or info pages about black on white crime and statistics. And that's where he became interested in these concepts and he became interested in why people consider George Zimmerman white. And so when we're looking at this, what we need to understand is that this is tied into an entire socio-technical system that depends on people not knowing what to ask and not knowing where to look for help. All right. So to zoom out for just a second, it seems like there's a consensus now that people should not be able to spew hate speech 
threats of violence on big platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Those companies may not be very good at moderation yet, but they do seem to be taking it seriously. So then people go to a site like Gab, which is pretty much explicitly about being able to say the things that you can't say on Facebook and Twitter anymore. Now Gab is down, and perhaps rightfully so. And where do people go next? Do they now go to private Discord servers where nobody can find them? And what's the what's the end game here? What's the what's the path that we're on? Are we just chasing these people into darker and darker holes where no light can get in? And you know, is this is this progress? Is this you know, is it just sort of this this uh, endless push to get them out of the public eye? Here's how I think about the internet: the internet is a process, not a product. It's just like how we wake up every day and decide that the public square isn't going to be taken over by neo-Nazis that day. You have to remain vigilant. You have to remain on target. And you have to, when companies do provide that support and that consistent and stable infrastructure, you have to call them to task. Because remember, Torba is making money off of Gap. Right. It's not just that Corba is providing a stable infrastructure for white supremacists. He's also soliciting donations. He's going to get a big check from, you know, people who are interested in like fundamentalist free speechers because they believe in what he's doing. And so part of the ways in which some of these platforms operate is on this, you know, techno-capitalist model where every crisis is an opportunity to raise funds. And so we we got to call that out. We got to lay it bare for what it is. But at the same time, yes, of course, they're going to move to other places. And hopefully when they get to those other places, there are other people waiting to say, not here either. You know, the reason why we end up with 4chan and 8chan isn't because 4chan was so disgusting they let people stay. It's because 4chan said no, and people had to go to 8chan. And at some point, people on 8chan are going to say no, and they're going to have to go to 16chan, right? But, um, you know, ultimately, it, the process model is what you have to work with in your mind of saying, we have to remake society every day, and we have to make it in the image of what we want. And if we get the internet that we deserve, it's because we're not actively participating in it. Joan Donovan, thank you so much for joining us. Any day. One final quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. 
made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, listeners, before we get to tabs, a quick post-production note. We had a technical glitch with the recording of this segment. So if we sound like we're talking to you through a tunnel underwater from far away... It's because you're listening to a backup tape that we fortunately kept of our Skype conversation. Sorry for this glitch, and hopefully it won't happen again. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. Will, let's start with you. What do you have left open this week? This is a story from the New York Times. It was a a fairly big investigation. The headline was, How Google Protected Andy Rubin, the Father of Android. It was actually not just about Andy Rubin, but about three Google executives who had been credibly accused of sexual harassment or misconduct. And in all three cases, Google protected them in various ways. They they kept the claims quiet. And in the case of Mr. Rubin, who was a very highly placed executive at the company, uh, not only did they keep it quiet, but when they found that an employee had made a credible accusation that he had coerced her into performing oral sex in a hotel room, they gave him a hero's farewell. According to the Times, they paid him $90 million exit package um, and said nothing about the real reason he was leaving the company. This was a, a big and disturbing expose about the company whose motto was once, don't be evil. Uh, April, you reported, I believe, uh, exclusively in Slate the other day that that one of these people still works for Google. Yeah, I uh, learned from sources, and I published this last night, that Richard Duvall, who uh, is a director at X, which is a sister company to Google under Alphabet, it's the kind of experimental projects, moonshoot lab uh, of the company, he had uh, told an employee, or not an employee, but rather a candidate during a job interview, uh, that he was polyamorous, and then later, before she had found out if she'd got the job, uh, invited her to, her to say hi at Burning Man. She went to Burning Man, said hi, because she was planning on going anyway to some extent, perhaps. Uh, said hi to him, still waiting to hear back from the job. He then asked her to take off her shirt so he could give her a massage. She was young, uh, an engineer. She ended up not getting the job. When she reported this to Google a few years later, a couple years later, they asked her not to say anything, said that it sounds credible what she said. And I found out that as of Friday, at least, he was still working at the company uh, and, you know, he had continued to work at the company, we know, even after this was reported. Um, I just couldn't even imagine if I was applying for a job at a newspaper or magazine that I really wanted and the editor I saw later at a party then asked me to take my shirt off while I was still waiting to hear back from the job, like what I would do is just terrifying. Um, So... What I heard from sources there is that there is a sense that the company kind of shelters uh, people who act in this way, particularly men who act in kind of a harassing way towards women. Uh, One source told me there's an increasing sense that Larry and Sergey, who uh, are co-founders of Google, may be the problem. Uh, The source continued, I don't think they're abusers, but they've sheltered them. They clearly think there's some amount of value they're getting out of these men that outweighs the women they're preying on. Uh, This is also uh, in response to the fact that uh, Sergey Brin has had a very public affair with an employee 
at Google, who was working on Google Glass a few years ago, and uh, and Eric Schmidt, uh, it was reported in the Times, once retained a mistress, this is a quote, to work uh, as a company consultant. So uh, there's a sense that this is just a deep problem that goes, uh, kind of runs through the company all the way to the very top. The CEO of Google, Sundar Pichai, shared on Thursday uh, with the company's uh, vice president of people operations, uh, Elaine Nowton, that Google had fired 48 people uh, in the past two years, 13 of whom were senior managers for sexual harassment. Um, so that's like 24 people a year in the past two years. I mean, Google's a big company, but that seems like a lot. Yeah. And there was a planned walkout by some Google employees, yeah. I think. Yeah. So, uh, you know, people uh, at the company, which let's be clear, Alphabet is the second most valuable company in the world, um, are definitely roiling uh, over the New York Times report and uh, how Google handles uh, credible claims that come in from women who work there. Yeah, I've definitely heard rumblings that this was in the culture of Google from the very beginning, sort of an original sin of the company. It's disturbing to read about now and maybe good that they're finally being forced to confront it, uh, albeit extremely belatedly. Yeah, uh, so I don't expect this to be the end of the story there. Um, but unfortunately, my tab is not any brighter, uh, but it is very interesting. <laughs> All right, what was your tab this weekend? Yeah, I know we like to have a bit lighter notes in the tabs, but this has just really been such a heavy uh, week with all the, the, the difficult news. And um, and I don't have an up note to, to end on here, but I watched this fantastic documentary on Frontline last night uh, on Facebook. And I wasn't expecting it to be fantastic because who wants to sit around watching a documentary about Facebook? But it actually really, really was so interesting. And, and I, who am a reporter on this, learned a ton. Um, it is called The Facebook Dilemma. It's a two-part series. Uh, there's another uh, episode of it uh, tonight. We're recording this on Tuesday, which I plan to watch. But uh, it was about, or at least one of the things that I learned last night was there was misinformation that was circulating around during the Egyptian revolution back in 2012. Um, and that Facebook uh, was well aware of this and that it was difficult for activists then. And that uh, DARPA had published something like 200 reports on uh, misinformation and bots and things like that that were a problem on Facebook. So Facebook had been aware of this problem that we're now like, having this public reckoning with, with disinformation for so long, right? And so it really brings into question uh, the culture of the company and, and the level of responsibility they chose not to take, perhaps. Really uh, well done documentary. You know, I just said that the uh, Egyptian Revolution was 2012. I meant 2011. <laughs> Sorry, long day. Um, but I really recommend been... check it out, Will. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I've been meaning to watch it, actually. And there's definitely been misinformation on Facebook for a long time. I remember this wasn't as far back as 2011. But in 2014, um, I did a story about hoaxes, um, hoaxes about uh, copyright notices that you could supposedly paste on Facebook to protect your information, hoaxes about bananas curing cancer, uh, hoaxes about vaccines. And I talked to Facebook back then about it. And they said, you know, it's, we've never really tried to do anything around uh, worrying about whether what's said on our platform is true or not. And they kind of mused, hmm, that's interesting. You know, maybe that's something we'd think about in the future. But it just, it was clearly not on their priority list, uh, even in 2014. It's really interesting because, you know, in 2011, the big news story was that Facebook can 
be a major tool in upsetting an entire government, right? Like there was the social media revolution is, it was kind of the headline that people liked to say. And, and, you know, they, they didn't seem to take that seriously, or if they did take it seriously, they didn't seem to think of through problems or, or, or think through how they should, um, protect the platform, uh, if it's going to be used in such valuable ways. Yeah, it was just such a time of optimism. They, people thought the people running these platforms thought that they would just default to being forces for good in the world. Obviously, now we know that's very much not necessarily true. And now we're trying to go back and figure out what went wrong. Anyway, I uh, look forward to watching that documentary. Thanks for that tab, April. Yeah, I guess optimism and billions of dollars is a powerful drug. But that does do it for our show today. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guests, Pablo Ortolado. You can follow him on Twitter at Pablo Ortolado. There's an underscore between his first and last name. And Joan Donovan, you can follow her on Twitter as well at Boston Joan. Thanks to everybody who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We sincerely appreciate that. And if you haven't had a chance to do that and you do listen to our show, um, I'm sounding like an NPR pledge drive here, but please, please pay us back with a nice review. Um, it helps us a lot. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Baker Sound Studios here in Philadelphia, where I'm recording from today. And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week.